0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes, as always, through the Scriptures. So turn in the Bible to Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30. but Basically the last half of chapter 11, from verse 20 down to the end of the chapter, as we deal with the 21st. I know the screen says 20th, but the 21st episode in the uh, Galilean ministry of Jesus Christ. We're going to jump right back into where we left off last week. Before we do, let's take a moment for silent prayer. I anticipate we're going to plunge into some deep issues here today, and I want to make sure that we're equipped to handle them. Shall we pray? Father, we humble ourselves in your presence and we thank you for this privilege we have to assemble together and receive instruction. We thank you for the time of prayer that the ladies had this morning, Father, and the opportunity to lift up uh, burdens and struggles and issues of praise and thanksgiving. Father, we have a double portion today as uh, we have two prayer meetings, two Bible classes, and we just praise your name for providing exceeding abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think. I pray you would give us concentration upon our material today as we examine scriptures and... See uh, some principles that apply not only for this present episode that we're considering, but Father in a, in a larger, in a larger scope of things. How does Your plan work together in uh, in the amazing way that it does? So, Father, help us. We're the finite creatures uh, peering into the infinite. Help us to understand the truth of what Your Word communicates. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, woes upon the privileged, and we 're going to approach this uh, as we did last week, verse by verse, through the text in verses twenty and following. But we have to consider some principles that come out of this text that are that are governed. By the language that is being used. And uh, as we do with any scripture, we, uh, we handle the text linguistically and we handle the thinking behind the text logically. And hopefully that will give us a clear hermeneutic, the only way to really be fair to any text that we are considering. Reading in verse 20, he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. It's not uh, my opinion why he was denouncing them, it is the scripture's record why he was denouncing them. The causative action behind his denunciation was their failure to change their thinking. They failed to change their thinking. Vocabulary definition for metanoeo, to change your thinking, uh, commonly translated repent. And had they repented, they would not have received this message. But they failed to repent. They did not repent. Even to this point of time, they were not repenting, and as a result, they received this corrective message. It's a message of woe. Now, we're going to talk more about some of these issues uh, in this message here today. Uh, In other words, why didn't they repent? Could they have repented? And what would it have taken for them to repent? Say, well, we don't know, but God does. And that's what we'll deal with as we present this passage here today. I think it's a huge passage, and I thought it was huge last week uh, when we first started teaching it. I thought it was huge two weeks ago when I was thinking about teaching it. And now that we're in our second week of this study, I think it's even huger than I even imagined because of all the studies I've ever done on some of these issues, this may be... Uh, a way to explain things with a biblical definition that will help our finite minds understand some of the great mysteries of, uh, of the scriptures. So you're, uh, you're here this morning in a part of history being made, shall we say, as uh, we may be answering uh, uh, some questions that have stood for centuries and have puzzled some of the greatest theological minds in the history of the church. Not saying we'll all walk out of here with that kind of understanding, but maybe this will be an approach that will uh, that will work for some people. I love the way the scripture allows us to approach a question from any number of different angles, and you can approach it from say four or five different angles, and it may be that the way we're designed and the way we think and the way we approach things that four of those angles won't make any sense to us at all. But that fifth one is really going to click. And we can grab hold of that and say, you know what? This is really making sense to me now. And and since we're all different, it might be different angles that that strike us in different ways. Uh, But I'm really excited about the way this angle is going to strike us here this morning. So let's get right on it. The, The message is given because, because they did not repent. Verse 21 then begins the message of woe. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. And those two become a pair just a step below um, Capernaum. Capernaum gets their own message uh, in verse 23. So we've got a pair of cities and we've got a single city. It's, it's uh, kind of interesting the way that's uh, laid out in that way. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So again, just like uh, in the present day where we have a pair of cities and one city set apart, in the past, in historical examples, we have a pair of cities, Tyre and Sidon, and then another city set apart being, in that case, Sodom. So, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So, the message is given because they did not repent. And in the same context, these other cities, who, by the way, they didn't repent either. They didn't repent either, and so they were judged. They were destroyed. And that's the that's the consequence of what's going to happen to Chorazin and Bethsaida. Their judgment is on the way because they didn't repent. They're not repenting either. Tyre and Sidon didn't repent either, and they were wiped out. But the point that's being made here is that Tyre and Sidon would have repented. Would have repented if they would have witnessed the miracles that Chorazin and Bethsaida have been witnessing throughout the ministry, the Galilean ministry of Jesus Christ. And so this is a message that includes not only the realities, but the what-ifs. The realities, and what I'm calling, and you'll see in some of the upcoming points, the potentialities. Now, a potentiality is something that might happen. If it does happen, it becomes a reality. If it doesn't happen, then it's an unreality. But prior to whether it happens or doesn't happen, it's simply a potentiality. And hopefully, some of these things. I'm not. I'm not an abstract thinker. I'm a concrete thinker. So I'm going to put these things in some very clear terms, so we can. We can. We're going to examine some some uh, uh, abstract concepts, but we're going to do so in a concrete manner. And maybe then that'll help us to uh, get a handle on it. But we're talking about what ifs. And this isn't just a couple of seminary students that are up way too late in a coffee shop at 3 in the morning that are debating some useless bit of theology. See, we're, we're warned in the New Testament not to wrangle or dispute or debate on these wild questions that people ask about all these goofy things. This is not a hypothetical what if. This is Jesus Christ using a what-if scenario to teach a doctrinal principle. And because Jesus Christ is teaching it, we better pay attention. And hopefully we can do so for uh, some tremendous edification here this morning. So they would have. They would have. Don't be confused by the fact that they didn't. See, some people would be real quick to say, well, who cares what they would have done? What did they do? They did not repent, so they were wiped out. Good for them. They were a bunch of rotten Canaanites anyway. Well, wait a minute. They would have repented under these conditions. Nevertheless, I say to you, verse 22, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. At the great white throne judgment, every uh, Tyronian and every Sidonian unbeliever will be standing there They will receive their judgment. They will be cast into the lake of fire. At the same time, every uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida unbeliever will be standing there. And they will receive their judgment and cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. But it will be harder for those in Chorazin and those in Bethsaida. It will be more tolerable for the Canaanites of Tyre and the Canaanites of Sidon. Now, that's another issue that we're not going to go into, but it's an issue that's hard for us to dwell on. How is the lake of fire any easier than it would be under other circumstances? Why is it more tolerable versus less tolerable? How is it tolerable at all? (laughs) All right. When we understand that the lake of fire is eternal separation from the glory of Jesus Christ. And what is that torment all about? When we see the rich man in Lazarus, it doesn't seem tolerable, but he thinks it could be if Lazarus could come over and dip some water on his tongue. All right? We might look at that if we have some time this morning, just to co- try to conceptualize how torment could he be more tolerable or less tolerable. That's beyond what we're going to deal with this morning. Verse 23, And you, Capernaum, now this is an identical message to the one he just gave. He just gave a message to two cities, twin cities, if you want to think of them, Corazon and Bethsaida, related them back to Tyre and Sidon, twin Phoenician cities. And if you, if you have any doubt as to how wicked Tyre and Sidon were, just understand one thing. That's where Jezebel came from. All right? When Ahab married Jezebel, he got her from Sidon. And the Tyre and the region of Tyre and Sidon, the, the, the Phoenicians of that day, were as wicked as you could ask for. And, and all you need to know is that's where Jezebel came from, and that says a lot right there. Now, this message for Capernaum is similar, but more intensified. And it's not a message for twin cities, it's a message for one city, a city that stands out as the most accountable city of their time. And they're going to be related to the most wicked city of all time. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which had occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. When the unbelievers of Capernaum stand at the great white throne, they're going to have a harder time than the unbelievers of Sodom when they stand at the great white throne judgment. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Now, before we can handle what verses 25 and 26 are all about, we need it's, it's built upon 20 through 24. So we want to be solid on that before we move on to 25 and 26 because jesus christ is praising the father not only for what he's done but the way that he did it the way that he did it you and i both know that we can do the right thing but we but if we do it in the wrong way it's wrong you say well come on it's the right thing to do yeah but you did it in the wrong way so the right thing done in the wrong way is wrong we understand that and God not only does everything right, but he also does everything in the right way. He also does everything for the right reasons. We can do the right thing and we can do it in the right way. We can do it for the wrong reasons. In which case, is it right or is it wrong? It's wrong. We have to do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons. And Jesus Christ here is praising the Father because he's doing not only the right things, but in the right way and for the right reasons. Uh, And so in verse 26 where he says, For this way was well-pleasing in your sight, means that the Father, just like it says in Ephesians, does all things after the counsel of his will. He's doing all things according to his own good pleasure. All right. All things, let's just finish the text, verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. So now here's the Son's good pleasure. We had what was well-pleasing in the Father's sight in verse 26. We had the Father's activity in hiding and revealing in verse 25. So all of this is building. The Father hiding and revealing according to what pleases Him. And now the Son hiding or revealing according to what pleases Him. And then the invitation. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Well, why bother giving an invitation? If you're going to hide from some and reveal to others, what's the point in making an invitation? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Why is there a command given if it's going to be hidden from some and revealed to others? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So a lot of people will split this passage into two parts. The 20 through 24 part and the 25 through 30 part. And they split it into those two parts as if those two uh, messages were totally different. I don't have any problem splitting it in two parts, but don't assume that they're different. They're really the same. And the one gives us the understanding of how the second one can be applied. So let's break it down. All right, as we dealt with last week, Jesus Christ pronounced messages of woe, and this was consistent with his prophetic office. And we spent time last week looking at messages of woe. I won't go back into that this morning. He denounced the most accountable cities. The verb on Edizo. If it was used in a sinful sense, if if the person is out of fellowship when he's doing this, or if he's an unbeliever when he's doing this, then on a deed, though, is to mock or to revile. It would be uh, a sinful activity, such as when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross and they mocked him, they reviled him. When uh, accomplished by a believer in fellowship, it's not a sinful activity. It is a it is a uh, Edifying activity, because this is a reprimand, this is a a scornful reproach that is meant to uh to shame the uh, the person into changing their activity it 's a reproach it 's a shame on you kind of message. you should know better. why are you doing that and those messages that provoke shame um they are a reproach. They are a reprimand. They're, de- they're designed to bring about a change of thinking. And if it takes shame to do it, well, then it's sanctified. It's, it's uh, a biblical means of communication when done under the filling of the Holy Spirit, of course. These cities were subject to reproach because they did not repent. We have Hati, then the negative U, followed by the verb metanoeo. It's in an aorist form, so it's in the text, it's Hati u metanaisan, but it's descriptive of why the rebuke was given. The verb metanoeo, to change one's mind or to repent. To change one's mind or to repent. Think about meta, metamorphosis, right? Animals that go through a metamorphosis, like caterpillars. Becoming butterflies. Okay? Meta and morphe. If you morph, you're changing your form. A morphe is a form. And so metamorph is to change the form. And these caterpillars, these ugly, crawly, creepy caterpillars, metamorphosize and they transform and they become these butterflies. All right? I'm not a big butterfly fan, but I at least can appreciate the fact that they're they're prettier than caterpillars. Alright. So meta when you think meta you can think change and noose is a term for mind. It's a change of mind. Noeo well, is a change of thinking and it's not has nothing to do with uh, emotions has nothing to do with how sorry you are for what you used to do it has everything to do with the fact that you are having a change of thinking you are responding to a content you are responding to a message and it's bringing about a change of thinking now they did not change their thinking they did not repent and so they are subject to this reproach it's causative We have to recognize that it's causative. Their failure to repent was causative for this message. All right. This is going to be a vital part of the study that we have coming up because uh, we have to answer the questions about God's sovereignty and about man's decisions. And how do those relate to one another? See? And hopefully this passage is going to help us to find that both are true. God is sovereign and they have choices. And they're accountable for the choices they made. It's the reason why they're being reproved here, causative, because they did not repent. All right. These cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and especially Capernaum, were subject to the greatest reproach because they had witnessed the greatest testimony. They had witnessed the greatest testimony. They had observed most of his miracles, it tells us in verse 20. So they were subject to the greatest reproach. Point five, the unrepentant of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom will bear reproach in the day of judgment, but to a lesser degree than the unrepentant of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, especially Capernaum. More bearable. Don't get me wrong, the unbelievers are going to be judged. They will be cast in the lake of fire for all eternity. They're in hell today. They've been in hell for the last 3,000 years, 4,000 years in the case of Sodom. They have been in hell for the last 4,000 years. Hell, death, and Hades will be empty. They will stand before the great white throne, and they will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. But it will be more tolerable for some than for others. If that's hard to grasp, well, just acknowledge that it's hard to grasp. Write it down and think about it later. (laughs) All right? Or don't think about it later. up to you. Say, Pastor, I really don't want to ponder the difficulties of uh, why it's going to be easier for some than others. Why it's going to be more difficult than some than others. Why are some going to be in lower levels of the abyss than others? See. All right. Point six. The omniscient foreknowledge of God. This is where we're going to spend our time today. The omniscient foreknowledge of God is aware of all realities and unrealities, actualities, and potentialities. The omniscient foreknowledge of God is aware. In other words, omniscience means God knows everything. Everything that is, everything that was, everything that will be. He also knows all of the what will not be's. Because he knows every what will be. And if he knows every what will be, then he knows every what will not be. The omniscient foreknowledge of God. See, foreknowledge is interesting because it's simply a forward-looking aspect of, of omniscience itself. And forward-looking is only a human term. Because God sees the whole thing from Alpha to Omega. He's outside space and time, is outside of his creation. So the, even the term foreknowledge itself is a relative term that... that that uh, features a perspective from somebody who's within the confines of time who can both look forward and look backward. In any event, the omniscient foreknowledge of God is aware of all realities and unrealities, actualities and potentialities. Do I need to illustrate this? Are we comfortable with the terminology? What I ate for breakfast is a reality. Nobody knows here what I ate, except maybe Bob. All right. What I did not eat is an unreality. Why is it an unreality? Because I didn't that's not what I had for breakfast. No, it's a it's a potentiality. Maybe I could have eaten it for breakfast, but I didn't. Say, did I eat Lucky Charms or did I eat, did I eat uh, raisin bran? Now both of those are unrealities. Did I eat a uh, brown sugar cinnamon uh, toasted pop tart? Kellogg's toasted pop tart yes that's the reality that's, that was my breakfast this morning so but could I have eaten Lucky Charms instead why didn't I well I made a choice so all of these and, and now these are just little stupid stuff it doesn't really matter okay. but each of these represents a choice and until I make the choice they're just potentialities I'm standing there thinking, "Hmm, what am I going to eat?" Making up my mind. Is it going to be frosted flakes or fruit loops? You know, do I like Tony the Tiger or Toucan Sam? What am I going to do? Okay? But the moment I make the decision and the moment I do the activity, then there are those potentialities are now gone. They're no longer potentialities, they're now unrealities because the one potentiality I did uh, select is now the reality. Okay? So we're clear on that. We can realize that God knows all of these. He knows all the what-ifs. As he says in verse 21 and again in verse 23, he knows the what-ifs. He says, if. Now, this is, we have four classes of of, uh, conditional phrases in in the Greek. There's four ifs. This is the second. Second class condition, if. If, uh, presenting conditions that are contrary to fact. This is not true. If, and it's not true, but if it was true. If the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, we know they didn't. But if they had, they would have repented. This is a second class condition, describing something that didn't happen, but if it would have happened, then these would have been the consequences. And it's vital that we understand that. Again, in verse 23. If, if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which had occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Now, we know the miracles did not, so Sodom did not repent. Sodom does not remain to this day. That is the day of Jesus Christ. And uh, Sodom is, is already 2,000 years in the uh, ash heap of history by the time Jesus is giving this message to Capernaum. But if, then, these are conditions... And they are conditions that the full knowledge of God has a complete handle on. God's knowledge includes the ifs that don't happen. The ifs that never did happen. Here's an if that didn't happen, and if it would have happened, it would have happened 2,000 years ago, and yet God knows the outcome 2,000 years later to an if that didn't happen 2,000 years ago. Are you following that? Alright. Because this, in my mind, this is what's going to start to answer a whole lot of our questions. So, subpoints under this. Sub point A. God knows the reality of what happened. What is happening. And what will happen. God knows the reality of what happened. In other words, he knows what I had for breakfast this morning. The reality of what is happening. He knows that I'm teaching a Bible class right now. And what will happen. He knows what I'm going to do this afternoon. I don't know yet, but he does. I think I know, I've got ideas, intentions, plans, but those can change. He knows the reality. Remember, the distinctions of time are always from the relative perspective of finite beings. The distinctions of time are always from the relative perspective of finite beings. Because that's where we are. We are in time, progressing forward through time. That's where we are, every single one of us. Right here, right now, if you're sitting in this class live, I can't help you if you're listening to an MP3. I don't know where you are if you're on an MP3. But if you're sitting in this room at this moment, live, listening to this message, then breakfast is in the past, lunch and dinner are in the future. But a few hours from now, later this afternoon... That changes, doesn't it? We'll say that breakfast and lunch are in the past, dinner's in the future. See how that works? Time is relative based on who we are, where we are, when we are, but God's outside of all of that. From Alpha to Omega. We think of Adam and Eve in the garden as way back when, 6,000 years ago. And we think of what's happening in the future as way off in the future. But it's all the same as far as God's perspective is concerned, outside of space, outside of time. All right. The um, principle there, I think we're solid on that. Illustration. Under some point B, I'll give you an illustration. God knew that Nineveh would repent when he sent Jonah. God knew that Nineveh would repent when he sent Jonah. Didn't put a reference on that, but book of Jonah. You're familiar with it? God knew that Nineveh would repent when he sent Jonah. And he knew that Nineveh would not repent when he sent Nahum. may not be as familiar with Nahum. Nahum doesn't get swallowed by a great big fish, so it's not as fun a story to read. But two prophets sent to the same city 150 years apart. God knew the what ifs. God knew every potentiality and every reality. And he knew that that Sodom, Nineveh was going to repent, and he sent Jonah. Jonah preached, Nineveh repented. God knew that Nineveh was not going to repent, and he sent Nahum. Nahum preached, Nineveh did not repent. Nineveh was destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar's father, by the way, Nabopolassar fighting for the Babylonians in conjunction with Medians, and brought about the fall of Nineveh, the downfall of the Assyrian Empire. That kind of ties into our Daniel series. So now if God knew that Nineveh was not going to repent, why did he bother sending Nahum? Wasn't that a waste of Nahum's time? Why wouldn't Nahum go preach to somebody that would listen? Why wouldn't Nahum go to a, a city that would repent or just give a Bible class for some Jews that believe God anyway? Why did Nahum have to go give a message to people that God knows aren't going to accept the message? Why are you and I expected to go give the gospel message to a lost and dying world, most of whom are going to reject it? Because God's knowledge does not change our responsibility. Our responsibility to preach, our responsibility to evangelize, our responsibility to teach the word of God. God's knowledge does not change our responsibility. Neither does God's knowledge change our accountability. We're still responsible to preach the message. They're still accountable if they repent or if they don't repent. As we saw in verse 20 of our Matthew 11 text. They are reproached as a consequence. The causative action for the reproach was that they did not repent. Causative action for this message. So there's our illustration. Perfect illustration. I didn't put scripture on that, but the book of Jonah and the book of Nahum. Both minor prophets in the Old Testament. Alright, point C. God also knows the potentialities of what will happen and how those happenings change in response to other circumstances and details of his plan once you get all of these down word for word god also knows the potentialities in other words what's potential what might happen the potentialities of what will happen And how those happenings change in response to other circumstances and details of his plan. The what ifs. The what ifs. If um, if um, we make different choices, and the choices we make that affects other people's choices, doesn't it? I don't like to dwell very much about certain things. <laughs> I don't know if you ever ponder what your life would be like if you were not saved. For example, or if you'd have made some dumb decisions, or if you hadn't have made some smart decisions, or if uh, you know things would have turned out differently, for example, but just think about all the different things that would have changed. See if uh, you know if, if, if Stan Newton hadn't gotten saved at the, at the Naval Academy, if uh, Stan Newton hadn't gotten onto theme tapes and onto some Bible teaching. If he hadn't brought the gospel message home to his sister. And if he hadn't uh, introduced her to to Ralph Braun and Austin Bible Church, his sister and his mother. And if Rhonda hadn't been introduced to Austin Bible Church, then Sharon wouldn't have been introduced to Austin Bible Church. And if Sharon hadn't been introduced to Austin Bible Church, then Sharon and uh, Shirley Newton wouldn't have been sitting in the uh, fourth row back on a Wednesday night, May 9th, 1990, the first time I walked into Austin Bible Church. See. And you start to configure all these, well, what ifs, what ifs, what ifs. Well, then, if Sharon hadn't been sitting there, then Bob wouldn't be sitting there. <laughs> Back there at his post. So all of these what ifs, and you change just one of them person giving the gospel is Stan Newton. Stan Newton looks at it and says, well, that's the dumbest thing i ever heard. And he rejects it. And he goes on about his unbelieving ways. Okay? Think about the chain of all those what-ifs. Now, it boggles the mind sometimes, and so, you know, don't waste too much time on it. But at least waste enough time on it to where you understand that God has every single one of these lined up. He knows every single one. And he knows about it 2,000 years later. In the case of the example we have here of this illustration. So he knows every potentiality. Illustration, point D. Illustration. If Abraham, Lot, or some other servant of the Lord would have undertaken a prophetic power ministry in Sodom, In other words, a work of power, the miracles that were done in Capernaum. If Abraham Lot or some other servant of the Lord would have undertaken a prophetic power ministry in Sodom, then the unbelievers of Sodom would have responded with repentance. This is not a hypothetical. This is this is a reality. This is a reality, but it's a conditional reality because it's conditional upon the performance of those miracles. Jesus Christ says this is what that reality would have been. They would have repented. They would have responded with repentance. That's what their response would have been. It's not a hypothetical, it's a reality. It's a conditional reality. And since the conditions weren't met, the reality didn't didn't happen. Everybody agree with that statement? If the miracles had been had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. That's what Jesus Christ is saying. I have to believe it. I struggle to believe it. (laughs) You mean Sodom could have repented? Well, Jesus says yes. So I believe it. So this leads to a question. You ready? Whose fault is it that Sodom was destroyed? (laughs) So we know they could have repented. They could have remained... To the first century A.D. They could have remained to see the life and ministry of Jesus Christ 2,000 years after Abraham. So whose fault is it that they were destroyed? Whose fault is it that Sodom was destroyed? This is a trick question anyway because I'm using a word. I'm using the word fault, which makes it a trick question. I'll show you that too. But we're humans. We want to find fault. We want to find cause for the consequence. And we usually want to deny that it's our fault. <laughs> That's nothing new. Abraham, Adam said it wasn't his fault. It's that woman you gave me. The woman says, not my fault. The snake lied to me. All right? Nobody ever wants to say it's their fault. When the, the question of fault is a trick question to begin with. Because it's not a fault, it's not a blame, it's a consequence. And it's a just consequence. Whose fault is it that Sodom was destroyed? Was it Sodom's fault for not repenting? Well, yeah, I think you could say that. Lots of people could say that. I'd say that. They didn't repent. It's their fault. They didn't repent, and fire and brimstone wiped them out. It's their fault. Talk about fault in a moment. It's kind of a trick question. Um, but their destruction was a just consequence for their decision. They did not repent, they were destroyed. If you want to call that fault, you can, but it's a just consequence of their decision. Or was it God's fault? Because Jesus just told us that they could have repented. Jesus just told us that they would have repented if. These miracles were done in them. They would have repented. So is it God's fault that they were destroyed? Is it God's fault for not arranging the circumstantial conditions that would have resulted in them repenting? Is it God's fault that they were destroyed? Some people would say yes to that question. It's God's fault that Sodom was destroyed. Why? Because He did not arrange... The circumstantial conditions that would have resulted in them repenting. He could have empowered Lot. Lot lived right there with his wife and his daughters, and his Lot lived right there. He could have empowered Lot to do all these miracles. To multiply loaves and fishes, walk on water, do whatever he has to do. Do all these Jesus-like miracles. And Sodom would have repented. Jesus tells us that. So Do we come along now and say, well, guess what? It was God's fault that Sodom was destroyed. Because he didn't send the miracles that would have resulted in them repenting. Now, here's where we get, we have to answer the question. And the question is flawed because it's coming down to, uh, we're we're putting a human term in it, fault. Fault. Because both of those questions below there were true relationships. Sodom did not repent, so they were wiped out. God did not send them those miracles so that they would repent. That doesn't change the fact that they did not repent, and so they were wiped out. Fault is an interesting thing. Because fault is not a divine term. Fault's a human term. God's term is not fault. God's term is reap. You reap what you sow. It's a consequence. It is a just consequence of a decision. Now, if I'm allowed one side trip per message, I'll take it here. It's, it comes in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 is a text that has been debated for centuries. Some people tell you it's been debated ever since Calvin and, Ar- and Arminius. And they say that this is a text that's at the core of the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism forgetting the fact that uh Calvin was in the uh 17th century and and uh Arminius was a little bit later same century and uh but Romans is 1st century <laughs> so the debate is older than Calvin because the debate is is in the book of Romans the question goes back to at least the 1st century and probably prior because the rabbis debated it in old testament times but in Romans chapter nine, we read in verse nineteen. Uh, this is a, a statement of, of uh, sovereignty throughout here, where, where God is talking, where, where Paul is writing about how sovereign God is and the choices that He makes. That God made the sovereign choice of Jacob rather than the sovereign choice of Esau, and He made that choice before they were born, so they didn't earn it, they didn't deserve it. He made that choice. So we read in verse. Um, Ten, Not only this, but there was Rebecca also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and not yet done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand. We'll go back to Matthew 11. We're going to be talking about the Father's choice. Jesus is praising the Father because it was the Father's good pleasure. It was well-pleasing in his sight. So here's the Father's choice. This is all sovereignty right here. Uh, the older will serve the younger, it says in verse 12. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. That's before they were ever born. The older will serve the younger. That's God's choice. Uh, some go too far, and they put verse 13 into that as well. And they take verse 13 and say, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And they take that verse as being before the twins were ever born, and so forth. And that's too far. You can carry that to verse 12, you can't carry that to verse 13. Because verse 13 is a quotation from Malachi. And a quotation from Malachi is certainly not before the twins were born. A quotation from Malachi is coming in the last book of the Old Testament. In any event, um, not my purpose to teach Romans 9 this morning. But notice in verse 19. Well, the issue is, is God's sovereignty. The issue is God's justice. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there may it never be. God is absolutely right, absolutely fair, absolutely just. Every action we receive is a just, every judgment we receive is a just consequence for our decisions. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. So it's God who has mercy. It's on God who wills. Just like the example of Pharaoh, how he hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now it says in verse 19, verse 18, he has mercy on whom he desires, he hardens whom he desires. That's sovereignty. But verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Now here is the human beings, and what are the first thing they want to do? They want to throw that fault word in there. Did God use fault anywhere? From verse 1 down through verse 18? No. But humanity comes along and they're, they're starting to find fault. And how come God finds fault? Who? Uh, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? They inject the issue of fault in there, and then they also inject the accusation in there that that the will of man is in conflict with the will of God, which is not a true statement. It's not a matter of resisting God's will. It's not a matter of man's will in opposition to God's will. It's a matter that man has a will, man made a choice. God has a will, God made a choice. And if we can't reconcile it, it's a good thing he can. <laughs> because he knows all the what ifs. So it's not a matter of of uh, of fault. And it's not a matter of... of the will of man in, in conflict with the will of God. It's the will of man and the will of God, and there, there's no conflict because God has the absolute sovereignty behind everything. We'll have more to say on that. This is, this is illustration. Verse 22, what if God, here's a, here's a what if. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Why does God put up with negative volition? He's sovereign. Why does He just crush it? Or why does He not permit it in the first place? He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory. So he endures the negative volition so he can reward the positive volition. He did so because it was his good pleasure to do so. Alright, so that's Romans 9. Back to Matthew 11. I'm not going to teach an exhaustive study on Romans 9, not going to teach an exhaustive doctrinal categorical breakdown on Calvinism, Arminianism, or Amaraldianism. See? If you don't know who Amaraldius was, it's too bad. <laughs> he uh, Remarkable. Bible scholar, taught the word of God. He taught absolute sovereignty, taught free will. So the Calvinists called him an Arminian and they hated him. The Arminians called him a Calvinist and hated him. <laughs> he was hated by both groups. Each group accusing him of being on the other side. All right. I'm not going to answer that question. I'm going to leave it with you and you can answer it yourself. Point E Tyre and Sidon were destroyed as a consequence of their own evil actions. Tyre and Sidon were destroyed as a consequence of their own evil actions. You know, we've got Genesis to tell us about the destruction of Sodom, and that's indisputable. Sodom was destroyed by their own evil actions. Likewise, Tyre and Sodom. We've got a lot more scripture on Tyre and Sodom than we ever have on Sodom. Look how many prophets that spoke against Tyre and Sodom. Isaiah. you got 18 verses of Isaiah, chapter 23. Isaiah 23, 1 through 18. you got Jeremiah. Jeremiah twenty five twenty two, also twenty chapter twenty seven, verses one through eleven. You got a you got a huge section of Ezekiel. Chapter twenty six, chapter twenty seven, chapter twenty eight of Ezekiel. Specifically it's Ezekiel twenty six one through twenty eight ten, also twenty eight verse twenty through twenty four. There's a parenthesis in chapter 28, from verse 11 through verse 19, that parenthesis that shifts to rebuke Satan himself. But outside of that parenthesis, if you take Ezekiel 26 through 28, you've got a message on Tyre and Sidon. Also the book of Joel, Joel 3, verses 4 through 8, and Amos, Amos 1, 9, 10. All of these prophets with messages about Tyre and Sidon and why it was they were being destroyed. The consequences for their evil. In the shortness of time this morning, I won't read those, but I would encourage you to read them. And see that God's judgment is a consequence for their volition, for their decisions, for the choices they made. I think it's uh, remarkable that they didn't come. The destruction of Tyre and Sidon did not come. Until the uh, until when it finally did come uh, at the hands of Alexander the Great, fourth century. Why didn't it come centuries prior to that? Why didn't it come? Uh, why was Nebuchadnezzar not able to destroy Tyre? Why uh, were the Assyrians not able to destroy Tyre? Why did they linger? Why were they given time to repent? No, they didn't. They were ultimately destroyed by the Greeks. Uh, but why? That's another study all on its own, but I believe it's because of uh, because of the blessings they were to David and to Solomon. That Iran, not Susanna's husband, but Hiram, the king of Tyre, blessed David, blessed Solomon, provided the lumber, provided the cedar, provided the craftsmen, provided the resources to build the temple. And the temple, the habitation of God's glory was constructed and it was Phoenicians that helped, that blessed David, that blessed Solomon. There was a friendship with David. And I believe the Phoenicians were blessed because of that friendship with David. Blessing by association that lasted centuries. and lasted even after Tyre and Sidon produced Jezebel and all of the things that these prophets here write about. Point F. The realities of the second class conditional statements. We need to get a handle on the realities of the second class conditional statements. These are the statements we have in Matthew chapter 11. The if would haves If would have's Because they impact not only do they impact specifically the messages Jesus is giving here, but they impact all of us in our accountability as um, those who uh, who do reap what we sow. There is uh, a neat resource. It's in print form too, by the way. But a neat resource that I enjoy using in uh, my Logos Bible software is called the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge uh RA Tory treasury of scripture knowledge and you know the little cross references you have in your bibles the little footnote cross references you have where you read there's a little a and you look in the margin to the little a and you find you know other verses you've got hundreds of those in your bible this has half a million cross references this is like cross references um, marginal cross references on steroids it is massive and in the treasure of scripture knowledge, at this verse of woe, in verse Matthew 11:21, there is a note that describes the hypothetical propositions, or the conditional if sentences, such as I've already described for you. The second class condition of if, which are the conditions contrary to fact, or the impossible conditions. These are the if didn't happen, but if they would have happened. See. We had one not long ago in uh, John chapter 4. Jesus was talking to the woman at the well. And he said, if you had known who it was that was speaking to you, you would have asked. And he would have given you living water. See, that was a second class condition of if, because she didn't know who she was talking to. But he said, if you would have known who you were talking to, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. That's one of these second class conditions of if. They're not true. Uh, there are other instances of this, and he lists a, a handful of them here. He does not include, interestingly enough, it does not include the John 4 one I just gave you. But Matthew 12, 7, if you had known what this means, I desire compassion, not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. In other words, if you would have had a doctrinal understanding of Hosea 6, 6, you wouldn't have condemned my disciples. But since you didn't understand Hosea 6, 6, you did condemn my disciples and... You guys just don't know what you're talking about. That's an example of a second class condition. Mark 13:20. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Let's talk about the great tribulation coming up. The great tribulation. Satan did what he could to destroy the human race. He's going to do what he can to destroy the Jewish people. Potentiality of ending all life on earth. The Father doesn't want to end all life on earth. The Father has plans and promises for Israel. And so this is a uh, condition contrary to fact. But if he hadn't shortened those days, see, he's going to come as a thief. And they're counting down their days. And they know that from the signing of the treaty, they know they've got seven years. And they know that treaty is betrayed halfway through. And they know that they can count 42 months. They know that they can count whatever it is, 3,260 days or whatever it adds up to. But see, beyond counting those days, God's mercy steps in and cuts it short. How short? They don't know. That's why he's coming as a thief. (laughs) Even though they can count the days, the fact that it's going to get cut short means they don't know when he's going to come. There's a what if passage there in a second class condition. Uh Luke 12:39, be sure of this that if the head of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You know, if you knew when the burglar was coming, you'd be there and you'd shoot the jerk when he was coming in. Okay? You'd have the police called. Him. You wouldn't shoot him. You'd know that he was coming, so you would have the police sitting there. Because you knew. But since you didn't know, you got broken into. This is one of those if-would-haves, if-would-haves. Okay? It's, it's, it's a tool, it's a common aspect of language. We have to accept it as such and understand that if the miracles had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. That's the reality of what would have happened if God would have sent those miracles. He didn't send those miracles. They didn't repent. So whose fault is it? Why were they destroyed? Uh There's several others. There's John, there's um, Romans 9.29, 1 Corinthians 2.8. If the rulers of this age had understood God's wisdom, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If the fallen angels would have totally understood how redemption was accomplished and how they were disarmed, do you think they would have put him on the cross? If the rulers of this age had understood the wisdom of God, none of them did, but if they would have, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Okay, that's enough of those. God knows all the what-ifs. Those are the realities of the second class statements. Uh, let me get 2 subpoints sub-points in here, and then we'll come back next week and do some principles, some vital principles. Next week is going to be huge, because we're going to build on what we've done here this morning. First reality, point one. Chorazin and Bethsaida failed to repent. Chorazin and Bethsaida failed to repent under circumstantial conditions which would have resulted in Tyre and Sidon repenting. And that's a reality. Chorazin and Bethsaida failed to repent. Repent. Verse 20 says they did not repent. They failed to repent. And as a result, they were reproached. Chorazin and Bethsaida failed to repent under circumstantial conditions which would have resulted in Tyre and Sidon repenting. So why were Tyre and Sidon destroyed? Why didn't God give Tyre and Sidon the same circumstantial conditions that he gave Bethsaida and Chorazin? So that they could repent. He didn't. It was not well-pleasing in his sight. It was not consistent with his plan. That's why he didn't. And the second reality, Capernaum failed to repent under circumstantial conditions which would have resulted in Sodom repenting and abiding for a period of more than 2,000 years. Capernaum failed to repent under circumstantial conditions. I'll define next week what I mean by circumstantial conditions. Don't think that that it's, because it's circumstantial, don't think that it's coincidental. The circumstantial conditions are not coincidental circumstances. They are sovereignly determined circumstantial conditions. Nothing coincidental about it. Capernaum failed to repent under circumstantial conditions, which would have resulted in Sodom repenting and abiding for a period of more than 2,000 years. Show me a city that remains for 2,000 years, continuously. There are cities on earth today that are more than 2,000 years old, but they have not remained continuously. They've been destroyed and rebuilt. Jesus says Sodom would have repented and would have abided, remained continuously to this day. What a center of positive volition Sodom could have become. So those are the realities. Those are the realities. Now why is it That Capernaum faced these circumstantial conditions. And Sodom faced the circumstantial conditions they faced. Why do you face the circumstantial conditions you face? Why don't you face different circumstantial conditions? Let's praise God that we don't. God does not test us beyond that which we are able to bear. It's a promise, isn't it? (laughs) It's a good thing, too. Because, you know, God could change our circumstantial conditions and he could craft them in such a way that it would be beyond what we could bear. God could crush us like that. He could load us down with so much temptation that we couldn't handle it. And then what choices would we make? And then what consequences would we face? But we face... We face the circumstantial conditions that he does give us. And that's what we're accountable for. We're accountable for the choices we make given the conditions he puts us in. Not the conditions he doesn't put us in. I have more to say on that next week as well. Because we're going to come to a study next week. Principles of Second Class Conditional Statements Contained in Scripture. principles that come out of this very logic these are statements of logic these are if then statements and they're they're predicated upon a condition contrary to fact in other words what didn't happen but what could have happened and what then would have happened if what could have happened would have it could have and if it would have this is what you'd have done and we're going to give you some principles on this next week and i think When we approach it this way, it's going to answer a lot of questions for us. It's going to show us where the Calvinists are absolutely right. It's also going to show us where the Amaraldians are absolutely right. And it's also going to show us where the Arminians are dead wrong. And we're going to demonstrate that. And we're going to do so because of what the text is doing for us. The text is showing us the could the would-haves, and the should-haves. And we'll deal with that next week. Have any questions before our closing prayer? Casey? Okay, ask it tonight. <laughs> Did you forget it? Yeah, you've got a lot of friends that are ordinary. <laughs> uh huh. Oh, great question. Ask that tonight. I won't answer that tonight. Because when you ask how come he couldn't, the answer is, oh, he could. The question is, how come he didn't? Not that he couldn't, he doesn't. And I'll answer that tonight. Ask that again tonight, or I'll forget. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Thank you for this study. And I pray, Father, that we can have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And we thank you for placing us under the circumstantial conditions this morning, whereupon the word of God is being taught, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. You've presented us with circumstantial conditions this morning, whereby we are uh, indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, filled with God the Holy Spirit, led and taught by God the Holy Spirit, Uh, who teaches us all things, even the deep things of God. We thank you and we praise you for these indescribable gifts. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.